Welcome to Sober Discussions. This is Steve and Mike, and sometimes you just need to take out the trash. Hello, and welcome to Sober Discussions. This topic will take a look specifically at California's housing trends, as well as Utah's. We'll also examine feedback received from an article, as well as finer details in the housing market therein. So, let's without further ado, look into what we have to say and what it means to you. Um, Mike, before we start, let's talk about population booms in California. Now, uh, could, would you mind reading that article for me, please? Yep. So, in 1900, California was home to fewer than 2 million people. By 1950, the population had reached 10 million. California's population nearly tripled in the last half of the 20th century, and its growth rate remained much higher than that of the rest of the United States. So, we've got a chart here that we're looking at. Back in 1902, there were under, it's looking like under 3 million people. <laughs> yeah. Which is where we're at in Utah right now, right? Right. Basically. Anyways, just uh, thought that was interesting. 2019, we're somewhere between 35 and 40 million people. That's see, that's <laughs> nearly a hundred years, but that's that's a lot of people. That's a big change. So let's look at just like the breakdown here. So let's see, 1995, right? That puts us like right at almost the cusp of 30 million, right? Yep. If I'm looking at that right, so 1990. That's within our lifetime, Mike. Uh, now we're looking at, you know, 2019, and that's up to 40. So in between, you know, our, our lifetime, it's already been 10 million people, which is an awful lot of people, considering, like, in Utah, uh, we don't even have, you know, 3.5 million, you know, where we're at right now. Anyways, I just thought that was interesting. Over the past 20 years, California has experienced its slowest rates of growth over ever recorded, and growth has been especially slow since 2017. According to estimates by the California Department of Finance, California's population grew by 7.3%, which was 2.7 million, between 2010 and 2019. Wow. This rate is only slightly higher than the national rate of 6.3%. So with that information, Mike, um, let's take a quick look at, as far as the growth of Utah. So basically in this chart, we'll obviously have it available on our blog spot too. What we're looking at right now, it is... Uh, Desert News. So yeah, th that's a uh, you know very reputable news information. A lot of people trust. So I, I think that this information is accurate. It makes a lot of sense to me. Anyways, in this chart, it's saying in 2016 we have just over three million people. So looking at this graph, we're probably right around 3.5 million now, just within four years. So I mean that's 500,000 people. I mean that's that's a good chunk. Yeah. Would you say? Anyways, so if we're projecting out, we're going to say there's going to be over 4 million people in 2034. So I thought that was interesting. Let's continue. So this is from our friends, PR Newswire. This is just talking about collectively as a nation about the housing currently. So or from 1975 to 2019. So when we look at this chart in 1975, there was 78 million housing units. Now, when we say housing units, I feel very strongly that's intended to be like duplexes, condos, apartments, uh, things like that, or people charging rent in their homes or whatever, right? Just to make ends meet. Uh, now, that goes from 1975 at 78 million to where we're at in last year to 139 million. So there's definitely been a huge increase. Of course, with population, of course, the numbers are going to get bigger. But I want to talk about why that information is so important. So, uh, okay, so the number of renters occupied 
1975 to 2019, there were approximately 43 million housing units occupied by renters in the United States. This number has remained steady since 2014, but it's part of long-term upward swing since 1975. This is also reflected in the downward trend of residential vacancies across the country. Huh, that's weird, Mike. I wonder how that could be. Interesting. This suggests that demand of rental housing is on the rise and that supply is falling to keep up with it. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that for sure. Just some food for thought, right? Why are rental homes in such high demand? This high demand for rental houses may be related to the unaffordability of homeownership. Hmm, that sounds weird. Not being able to afford to buy a home? Hmm, that sounds familiar. Was the biggest reason renters gave when asked why they didn't currently own a home in a recent survey, which makes a lot of sense to me. The monthly cost of home ownership versus rental costs vary state by state. In 2018, it was less expensive to rent a home in Hawaii, Washington, D.C., and Colorado uh, than it was to buy. However, the opposite was true in California. Weird. We're kind of talking about that, Mike. Mm -hmm. New York and Louisiana. So, so uh, here's an analysis from a decent source I thought folks would appreciate. This is an overall assessment uh, for homeowners in the United States. Uh, thank you, Tista.com. So they gave a really good chart uh, that I really appreciated talking about homeowner rate in the United States from 1990 to 2019. So we're looking in 1990, it's about 64.1%. Now, uh, keep that number in mind. That peaks way up in about 2004. Uh, now, that's when we had some shady um, loan practices, uh, some uh, bubble mortgages. Uh, things like that, that people got into a home that they couldn't afford. Um, people were very economic. They had a really good career and everything. And then if we look in 2008, 2006, we can see that drop, right? And then drop, and then drop. Clear through 2016. <laughs> and then, you know, 2016, we picked our economy up. I mean, it took us long enough, right? <laughs> but, yeah, we're at six or 65.1%, whereas in 1990, we're at 64.1%. So if we're looking from our lifetime, we're pretty close to what it was before. That's right where we started. Except for hyperinflation. True. And wages. Yeah. You know, rental costs, things like that. Anyways, we'll talk more about it a little bit later. Can you read that? The homeownership rate in the United States amounted to 65.1% in 2019, like we were saying. Mm -hmm. Homeownership rate is the proportion of occupied households which are occupied by the owners. Mm. This reached its peak in 2004, before the recession hit, and decimated the housing market. The rate continued to fall from 2004 until 2016, and has now only just started to increase since then. The rate of homeownership in the United States fell in the lead up to the recession and continued to do so until 2016. In spite of this trend, the share of Americans who perceived homeownership as part of their personal American dream remained relatively stable. This suggests that the financial hardship caused by the recession led to the fall in homeownership rather than a change in opinion about the importance of home ownership itself. I completely agree with that statement. I think that's very accurate information. Yeah. Just that last part, please, sorry. Homeownership trends vary from generation to generation. Homeownership among Americans over 65 years old is declining, whereas most millennial renters plan to buy a home in the near future. This suggests that homeownership will remain important in the future as millennials are forecast to head most households over the next two decades. So the reason why I thought that was so kind of important, I mean, I think right at 1990, but when they say millennials, I think that's very pertinent for people like us. Mike, you own a home. I do. Um, I obviously don't own a home. Um, that being said, 
Um, we have tried, well, cover that in the next section. I don't want to bore you to death. But anyways, I just thought that was some interesting information that they're saying, hey, this is important. People literally can't afford it right now. People have gotten into, you know, student loans and things like that, don't have a good career, paying off school debt, and are trying to figure out what the heck they're going to do, which is why they're planning on doing it in the future, because they can't afford to buy a home. Right. Everything's expensive and homes are no exception and they just keep going up. And they're up. going up. And yeah, anyway, we'll talk more about that too. I just thought that that was important. So now that we've looked into California and the U.S. as a whole, let's look into Utah. It's a quick snapshot. It has a lot of good information. I'm not going to cover a lot of it. I just want to talk about uh, specifically the graph uh, that I thought that was important. So in figure one, this is permits issued for residential units uh, in Utah, which is important. So if we look at the bottom here in apartments, I mean, that's pretty bismal. Right, Mike? Like, it's it's right around, you know, 2000. Until you get up to about 2016. Weird how that's a coincidence, right? How people can't afford houses, but rental properties becoming more popular. Mm -hmm. Weird how that happens, right? So that actually goes up from 2000 in uh, 2014 all the way up to over 4,000. So that's double. Was that six years? Four years. Four years. Four years. Thank you, Mike. Four freaking years. That's a huge freaking boom. That's crazy to me. Anyways, yeah. now continuing, we're looking at condos and townhomes. That's kind of even with, I guess you'd say, the uh, apartments. Basically saying, hey, it's cheaper to buy a condo. It's cheaper to buy a duplex. So you can afford it and live in it. Just comparable to apartments as far as like rentals go. But if we look at the housing market for permits, it went way up in 2006, dropped way down in 2008 when that recession hit. Yeah, the disparity there is, is pretty massive because it's mm -hmm. in 2000, it's about 7,000 permits for homes. Right. Goes clear up to 10,000 in 2006 and then drops way down to almost looks like 3,000 and comes parallel, equal to where the apartments are at. Right. And then it does start to climb after that, but so do the apartments. Right. Exactly. I just thought there was some really good information. Who's our source on that? Just, just so our viewers know. So this is gardner.utah.education. We'll definitely, of course, include that graph. Really good information, just to think about it. So uh, just before we jump to this video, by the way, it is about 45 minutes long. The good news is we cut a lot of it out and got what I believe to be the most important. And so we'll cover that for sure. It is a good video. I would highly recommend it. Anyways, uh, so this is just another graph from wolfstreet.com, but I think it says the clever real estate. So a real estate company paid a statistician to go and do some statistics for them, which I thought was interesting. So let's look at the medium gross rent per month, right? So from 1960, everything was right on the same part. Like in 1960, people wanted individuals to be able to have a home, to be able to have their finances, to be able to take care of their family in a financial, reasonably, say, equivalent, you know, manner. And we'll jump to just 10 years, 1970. It's still about equal. It's not exactly on the spot, but it's still very reasonable. It's very doable, right? But if we look at the medium household income, Mike, has that changed since 1970? Maybe uh, barely, right? A little bit, not a ton. Yeah, so from 1970 to 2017, we basically have the same average income, right? Now, if you think about all the things that have hyperinflated or inflated within you know, your lifetime of 1990 to now, it's been pretty significant, right? Income should be something that inflates along with everything. Right, I agree with that. But capitalism doesn't want to hurt their bottom line because they will underpay and overwork 
people as long as they can. Right. That's just how they are, which I don't agree with. doesn't seem like you agree with that. No. But anyways, I just thought that was an interesting point. Uh, moving on, looking at medium gross rent per month, we see this really spread. Steady growth. About 75%, I think, right, in, in this. Um, can we scroll up to see the exact numbers? I think they said 75%. 72%. So, so that went up 72% for the rent you know, from that. So you do the math on that. I'm not going to change your mind, uh, but just think about it. And then the housing price, Mike, what does that look like in this graph for the growth? From even, let's take a look at 2000 to 2017. So 2000, we've got, it's sitting right at about 75% growth since 1960. Right. 2008, it jumps to like 150. Right. And then it dips and comes right back up and stays right around 150% growth. Dirt bags. So the housing market is just blowing up and it just doesn't seem to be stopping. It did have a dip there for a couple of years, but... It's just, and, and that's, again, that's right around the recession. Right. Uh, but then it just kept climbing. Right. It, but people's income has not. It, has not. And so there's a huge difference in disparity between people being able to afford a home. Uh, some people might be able to uh, squeeze in being able to have a home and live uncomfortably. And there's people that won't be able to uh, for a long time unless things change or, or they get a better career or whatever. Right. I just thought that that was a very valuable graph. Well, and the numbers, I mean, it, it's a big change. In 2017, since 1960, the average income for a household has gone up 25%, where the housing market has gone up 125%. Right. I mean, that, that's a big disparity. Right. I agree. I agree. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. Uh, we'll say that I looked in the interwebs for a kind of snapshot. We'll say I'll paraphrase it. But uh, I saw this information... Uh, about an individual that purchased, I, I'd say you say a multi-family home, I guess to say politely. Yeah. They purchased it, right? And then uh, what they did was they followed this, essentially that they're going to fix it up, they're going to rent it out, and they're going to refinance it, right? And so what they did was they gave, you know, we'll throw in a number, 15K, whatever. It, not, it doesn't matter the specifics, really. But when they fixed it up, uh, they refinanced it, which gave them a higher market value, right? Mm -hmm. You'd say, Mike? Yep. So they got a higher market value on the house, and then they use it as a rental property, and it's a multi-family home. So you've got at least four, five renters, something like that. Definitely more than two, I guess is what I'm trying to say, Mike, based on this information that you can see. Um, anyways, so they're just like, hey, there's really no better time to buy a home. And uh, he's making a lot of money, and they're doing really well. And that really just really, to be quite honest with you, Mike, pisses me off. <laughs> well, uh, and you think about it, yeah, if he's going to be renting out to four families, that's one one property, one unit. One freaking property, yeah. Go ahead. And four household incomes coming his way. And, right. And that's, that's going to be a lot of money. He's going to be making way more money than he should be off of that. Right. And then uh, if he wants to sell it, all he has to do, really, to be honest with you, Mike. Kick him out. Kick him out. Tear down those, you know, sections, redo it for another, you know, 15K or whatever, and then sell the whole property because it'll probably be at a higher market value than what he bought it at. And he's not even losing any money because he's using it as rentals. Yeah. Now, if you look at this from a business standpoint, people can argue that there's absolutely nothing wrong with what he's doing. But if you also look at it from the standpoint of how much the housing market is increasing and how, like we just looked at, the 
the rate of um, household income. Of, of rental, right, too. Yeah, yeah. So the cost of renting versus the, the household income, you know, with everything just climbing except for household income, it kind of turns this, oh, it's an okay business idea to, it's kind of taken, from a business standpoint, somebody might say that it's, there's nothing wrong with it. But then, yeah, you, you look at the other side of it and the cost of living and, and all that. And, and it's super unfair and super right. um, amoral. It is super, immoral. super not moral. Right. Would you say that that person has the renter's best interest at heart? Absolutely not. Let's <laughs> see. Yeah, exactly. Not, not even close. Not even remotely. So uh, somehow in this country, we're able to objectify individuals for income. I don't get it. Some people really get it. Maybe we're just at, like <laughs> have different brains or something, but I just don't get it, Mike. Now, Anyways. now I, I will say, mm-hmm. um, I have rented in the past. Uh, growing up, my parents did. Right. Um, on and off. And uh, there are renters out there that are great renters, and they may be in it for the money, but they're not in it for the money so much that they forget that we're people. Amen. Um if I can uh, pony off of that, yeah, yeah. if that's okay. So let's talk about Carlin, Nevada. I, so Carlin, Nevada, uh, lots of miners, has a lot of money. So what do you think if you are a developer or if you can purchase uh, homes and renovate them and rent them out, of course you're going to do it, right? Right. Of course they're going to pay it. Where else are they going to stay? I do have an answer, by the way. Motel 6, <laughs> and when I went to Motel 6, there literally was no rooms available in Motel 6. That's how crazy it was. So uh, I was able to find a really ran-down motel uh, for me to stay there while I was trying to find housing. Um, I actually lost power uh, for, for the heating on it, uh, so they didn't give me another room. They gave me a small space heater, right? So sleeping in, you know, my... Uh, and my lineman coats and stuff in the middle of winter, it was like negative 20 degrees outside, right? It was crazy, man. Uh, what I'm saying is, um, continuing, uh, I actually was able to find an individual, um, kind of a small world, not going to go a lot into it, but uh, basically this lady was trying to rent out her property. Previous renters uh, destroyed their house, basically. She fixed it up. I, uh, she's like, hey, I uh, just need to clean it up or whatever. I said, Really? I'm literally sitting in a house right now in negative 20 degrees uh, for the last three weeks. I think I'm just going to, you know, do it. I'm just going to move in and clean it. Like, I'll do it. Like, I'm kind of really desperate right now. Charge me a very reasonable rate. I'm sure she made money off of it. It was an old home. It was actually gifted to her from her previous husband, basically, in the divorce. So I would say um, she definitely made money off of it, but she was also very reasonable about it. Um, and then when I was in uh, Texas, I could not find really good housing, to be honest with you. I somehow just randomly found this gentleman that was renting out his other uh, half of his house that was gifted to him from his parents that passed away. And uh, he charged me a little more than I thought was reasonable, but it was way better than the surrounding areas. He was a nice guy, um, very you know Christian about things, uh, utilized that money that I gave him, uh, to help other people around the community. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, no, that's great. Anyways, um, anyways, that that's kind of my five cents about my experience with renting. So what I'm saying is, I don't think a homeowner um, rents property out in our son of perdition. 
I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think that is, I don't think they're inherently evil. I think some of them can be, is what I'm saying. Anyways, let's continue, Mike. All right, so this comes up to the next section. Uh, we're going to play this video. Now, it, it, again, it is a little long. We took about six minute clip. Uh, we're going to discuss it. Uh, Mike, if you could please businesses attempt to make money. I'm going to take issue with this argument that landlords don't pay for anything and that their tenants pay for everything. If we view this outside of the landlord-tenant model and simply look at it as business and customers, all businesses use their customers' money. Like, that's how a business works, guys, right? So it doesn't matter whether you're running a coffee shop, an apartment building, or a Fortune 500 company. You understand every business is inherently, if it's like every business is a for-profit enterprise. They're in the business of seeking margins, seeking income. I get it, and it sounds really bad when you frame things like this, but this is literally any for-profit business. Any for-profit business. I know. I know that. That's obvious. Curiously, his example is almost always either food or coffee. I think, because I mentioned early in my video that I don't think it's ethical to charge someone for something they require to live, and food and coffee are things that I require to live. Matt seems to be under the impression that I believe shelter is the only basic need people are entitled to. He seems pretty preoccupied with the idea that I'm focusing too much on landlords and not talking about other businesses, and like... Yeah, I did that because that's what the video was about. So that's why I talked about that thing. So I would say our sober discussions are pretty structured, right? Yeah. I'd say so. Now, if we brought up a topic out of the blue and then transitioned it into, oh, I don't know, from housing market into rise against for, you know, 30 minutes, I would say that detracts. Absolutely, yeah. Anyways, so I just didn't think that that person's point was valid. I guess is all I'm trying to say. Changing, he's kind of changing the subject. Right, yeah, he's deflecting, right? He doesn't really want to answer um, it. He definitely wants to attack an individual and kind of structure it in a way to make it sound like this person's stupid. Anyways. Other things. However, just because other businesses also profit from basic needs, that doesn't make working for those businesses the moral equivalent to being a landlord. <laughs> he gives the example of a farmer making fresh produce. If I find out that my local farmer is profiting by selling me vegetables, do I have the right to just go and seize those vegetables? Because they're also a physiological need, right? Like it's at the bottom of the hierarchy of Maslow's uh, triangle. Yeah, you shouldn't be a dick so either. The thing about farmers is you're paying them for their labor. They grew the food, they harvest the food, they distribute the food by putting it in the little bin so the mayor can come get it. It wouldn't be fair for them to do all of that without compensation, within a system where they require compensation to meet their needs. Regulation. Ideally, everybody would get the food they need without paying, but within capitalism, the system we live in right now, that means that the farmers wouldn't be able to pay for the things they need. So, this guy, he says in the video, he's kind of an anarchist, He's kind of a communist, which, I mean, he's entitled to that opinion, right? Sure. I mean, that's America, sure. right? Do I feel like capitalism can work? I definitely think capitalism can work, but we also need proper regulation to keep that in check because people are inherently um, in it for themselves. Like, they don't want to help someone out out of the goodness of their heart in a business model, typically. Right. Anyway, so I think capitalism can work. Um, I, I do think that we need regulation to maintain that so things don't spin out of control. Agreed. Anyways, uh, please continue. Sorry, Mike. 
shoes and sword upgrades for fighting in the mines and little hats that you buy from a, a cat that comes once a week. Landlords might perform labor incidentally. They might do repairs or maintenance on a unit. They might fill out paperwork, but that's not what you're paying them for. You're paying them because they own your home. Like if you moved into an apartment and there was never any need for repairs and there was no paperwork, you'd still have to pay rent because right. the thing they're charging you for is the access to the thing that they own. That's different from just like selling someone a carrot or a house. In that transaction, you're paying them to own a carrot or a house. At the end of the deal, you own your carrot or house. Same way with a coffee or a copy of Ghoulies on Blu-ray DVD combo. So I thought of it kind of like Netflix, right? Do you own Netflix? Yep. Do you like Netflix? Uh, more or less, we own it. Uh, right. By own, I mean use it. You use it, right? I think we're getting on the same page here. So we have the right to utilize that service. We don't own that service. The instant we stop the service, we lose any access to all of it. Correct. Which is just like it is with a landlord. That's what he's trying to bring up. That's what he's trying to talk about. Yeah. Over your money to a landlord, and then they do nothing but collect it. That's why it's called passive income. The only role the landlord plays in this transaction is to collect money and hand their tenant back no nothing, not a, not, a, not a thing, nothing. No, no the service, and I use that term quite generously, you're providing, only exists to make a profit. If it weren't profitable, right. it wouldn't even make sense that it existed. It's like, true. what would a landlord even be if they weren't making a profit? Right. But with or without the profit motive, there would still be farmers, there would still be plumbers, there would still be cobblers, both pie and shoe. You're providing nothing and doing nothing, and people have to pay you or someone like you or they don't get a place to live. Please note the phrase, you or someone like you. But you're right that my video did focus on landlords to the exclusion of other business practices based on ownership that I also think are immoral. I think owning the patent on life-saving medicine and charging a premium on people who manufacture or sell it is also wrong. I think it's wrong to extract the surplus value of workers by owning the equipment they use to do that work. I think it's wrong to profit off of the ownership of an emerald mine or a car factory or a rocket factory. I didn't bring those up because that my video is about landlords, so that's the thing I talked about. Your argument here is essentially claiming that I believe something that would make my views on landlords contradictory, point out the contradiction and then pretend that shows I'm a hypocrite, which would be great if I believed the things you're saying, but I don't. Why is it that we're so precious around shelter, but everything else is free game? That shows an emotional reaction, in my opinion, because that's a blind spot. So, when I heard that, a blind spot, emotional reaction, Mike, if someone evicted you from your house, wouldn't you be pretty pissed? Yeah. I think I'd be pretty pissed. I think if that happened to a friend, unjustified, I think I'd be pretty mad about that, too. I don't think that if someone took my Netflix away because I didn't pay for it, I'd say... I didn't pay for my Netflix. That's reasonable. That's fair. Right? Yeah. That has nothing to do with how your living circumstances is because that's how a lot of things revolve around it because you come home from work, you know, you want to cook some food, you want to make sure that your family's secure, you want to have a place to sleep. That is definitely going to get a lot of people bent. And I just think that guy's a douchebag. <laughs> and, and I don't know if it says this in this clip too. But this gentleman has 100 tenants. 100 tenants. Do I think he's giving mass properties out, out of the goodness of his heart, the way that he's structuring his justifications? I don't think so. I think he's making a lot of money from it, and I don't think he's a very good landlord. He's, 
yeah, he, he kind of reminds me of uh, the the guy we were talking about before. Right. Renting, renting those four... That's it. The four plexes. Four plexes. Or, or, yeah. You know, five plexes, six plexes. Not that I'm trying to get into any specifics about it, but yeah. Definitely. He, he's in it for the money, and I think definitely. I think his responses might just be him trying to defend himself. Definitely. Just to justify, to justify his actions, right? Yeah. It, not that it's necessarily wrong. Again, like we've said, there are landlords out there that are great, but right. there are those who are just in it for the money and don't really care about the people that are renting right. for them, and... Anyway. I agree. No, I agree. That's very fair. Lords imply that I think they are uniquely evil among the bourgeois. <laughs> For the record, I don't think you or landlords in general are evil, which was the first thing right. I said in my video. Number one, I don't think all landlords are bad people. Like I said about cops, it does not matter to me if an individual landlord is a good person who will go to heaven. The institution that they take part in by being a landlord is what I take issue with specifically. I'm not making a judgment on anyone's entire moral character. I'm making a judgment on this particular action that they're taking. I think that the economy incentivizes landlords to exploit their tenants, and so logically, they respond to that incentive. I'm right. assigning no moral characterization to the word exploit here. I'm using it literally to mean to make full use of something for your own benefit. Right. So. He talked about good cops and bad cops, right? There are people that want to reasonably do their job as a landlord and charge a reasonable amount of rent where they make a little bit of money but don't screw over a bunch of people, right? Yeah. yeah. I think most of people that are landlords, and, and I could be wrong, right? I think most people probably own a few properties. I don't think they own 100 tenants is what I'm trying to say, Mike. I think that's a little bit overboard. I wouldn't even be that upset if we had some sort of regulation about it, specifically, yeah, yeah. you know, for that. Because if you're looking at a hundred tenants and you charge, you know, eight hundred dollars a month or a thousand or whatever, I mean, you do the math on that. That's a lot of income. It's a boatload of money. Yeah, it's more than you're going to need to pay rent or uh, mortgage for. Right, definitely. That that was just my assessment. Anyways, uh, let's scroll down if you wouldn't mind. I, I'm going to yeah. pause before we do. Uh huh. There may be people listening to this who fall into that category who do own a lot of properties right. and who are rent, and they may completely disagree with what we say. That's fine. I, I mean, we're we're just kind of looking at facts as well as kind of giving our opinions based on you know our experiences. Uh, if you disagree, then that's okay. Everybody has their own opinion, and so be it you know that yeah no definitely that, that's a very good assessment mike i agree with that and yeah i mean or am i trying to change a person's opinion maybe to an extent of maybe a different idea or a different way to look at it but if if you're set on that you're set on that and i respect that that's your opinion i just have a differing opinion that's all anyways i just wanted to include um just a thought when i was reading uh he doesn't talk about why it's advantageous for renters uh, because they literally need a place to stay why would you invest in a subscription service if it's not even remotely beneficial for you. A win-win relationship, they buy uh, you know, places to own so people can live there. People that own homes, own homes. People that rent homes still uh, don't even get their freaking property that they're paying for, right? Like Netflix. Anyways, that, that was just my opinion on it. Um, if we can scroll down here, we were just gonna talk really briefly on some federal laws. Um, so this is the Fair Housing Act. The Fair Housing Act prohibits discrimination in housing based upon race, color, religion, sex, familial status, or national origin. A subsequent 
amendment added disability to the protected classes. Under the law of HOA cannot take any adverse action affecting a person's right to buy, rent, or enjoy the use of real estate based individual's membership in a protected class. Obviously, exclusionary covenants preventing sales or lease to anyone within a protected class would violate the FHA, but the law also prohibits certain activities which might not seem so obvious on the surface, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, I, I think that maybe some homeowners, I'm not saying all homeowners, right? I'm not even saying most homeowners. I'm saying some homeowners probably do, uh, I guess you'd say discriminate or what would you call it? Profiling. I think they do profile the renters. Oh, that person, um, uh, I don't like how they have tattoos or I don't like how uh, they work as a blue collar worker. I don't like, uh, you know, their credit score, things like that. Uh, obviously, you know, there's a right way and a wrong way about going about it, but I think that there is some profiling involved. I think there is some discrimination. I think it's very good that we do have a federal mandate for regulation with that. I agree because no matter how a person chooses to live or who they are, right. everybody needs a place to live. Everybody needs a freaking place to live, Mike. You're absolutely right. Thank you. Well, that's exactly what I was trying to say. You just said it a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so... I obviously don't want to bore you to death, but there is a lot of information I found on this website. So if you'd like to look it up, uh, good for you. Uh, I would recommend it. It is some good information. Uh, let's cover, if we can scroll down here. Yeah, that was from hopb.co. Slash federal laws. Yep. So it's kind of like um, a private company that just included a federal mandate for regulation. Got it. That people could review it. Anyways. Um, basically, I'll give you some talking points, right? They're talking about inherent risk. Uh, they're talking about looking at properties. Um, it's a calculated risk. Um, and, and the problem does exist. Uh, okay, so I just want to talk about the terminology. So you can say something, we'll call it like a selfie, right? If you remember the term selfie wasn't in the dictionary in 1990, right? And now it is. Just a stupid word, right? Yep. So sometimes people... Uh, justify something and then call it a stupid word. I'm going to call it determinology, which I'm not sure is a word, but I'm just going to call it a word because it's determining the terminology of something and then just making yourself seem smart, but really it's just another stupid word like selfie. Anyways, when they we talk about a win-win solution, uh, when I think win-win solution, uh, I think a, a mutual beneficial symbiotic relationship. I think if a person can benefit from something, like for instance, me using my some software to incorporate my podcast, I'm paying a subscription service for it. They're charging me a reasonable transaction price, and so I'm willing to pay that. That's a very mutually beneficial uh, thing. I wouldn't be against that if it's with landlords. I think landlords try to. I'd say a lot of them do, but some of them definitely don't. What do you think, Mike? When you say landlords try to, you mean they try to be reasonable? I would say most try to be reasonable, try to have that symbiotic relationship. I'm saying I believe definitely some don't. And I would call them sons of perdition. That's what I would call them. <laughs> if, if I had to get biblical, that's what I would call them. But anyways, what are your thoughts, Mike? There's, like you said, there's just kind of both sides to it. There are those who are trying to create that symbiotic relationship there, right. there are probably even those who try to just stay out of the way but at least provide 
a reasonable price for somebody to live somewhere. Right. Definitely. Um, I agree. Yeah. yeah. I, I think there's just kind of people in all all sides of it. For sure. So I just wanted to talk about house flipping. Now, this is Dave Ramsey. You probably heard him. Uh, he just wanted to talk about um, basically uh, how people are making a lot of money from house flipping. Uh, if you're not fully aware with house flipping, you basically uh, buy a rundown house, you put a small budget into the house, you fix it up, all of a sudden the market value goes up and then you sell it at an increased rate is what house flipping is. Yeah. Uh, another thing that they do, which doesn't mention in this article, uh, is that they'll fix it, they'll rent it out at a higher price than what they would have They'll wait, you know, five, ten years or whatever when that housing market goes way up and then sell it and they've been receiving income for that property their whole time. Anyways, I just thought that was interesting. Um, I do have that available in uh, the blog if you want to look into that article. Again, I'm just trying to be time effective. So we're looking at another independent article uh, that was kind of interesting. Basically, it has some pros and cons about house flipping and renting. So, Mike, would you uh, please read that for us? So this is from realwealthnetwork.com, and when it comes to flipping homes, uh, we would totally recommend checking out the website and looking more at this. This is just the bullet points that they're listing, and we're not going into any of it. Uh, They they give their reasonings and, and descriptions about each of these, but when it comes to flipping a home, uh, they have two pros and two cons they list. So pro number one, they say that you get uh, quicker returns on your investment when you flip your home, uh, when you you know flip a home. And uh, pro number two, there is no long-term property management, so you don't have to deal with things for a long period of time. Right. Uh, con number one is an inconsistent income, and con number two is taxes. Oh no, not taxes for a property that I bought. Life, death, taxes. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, renting, uh, pro number one that they list, uh, you have an ongoing monthly income when you rent out a home. Pro two, your property value should increase over time. And pro number three, your investment property has tax incentives while flipping doesn't. Con number one, you have a risk of vacancy at any time. And con number two, not all property is passive. On... Um specifically risk of vacancy. I think if you're a good landlord and you have a good renter and they have a pretty stable environment, they're likely going to stay there for a while. Yeah. Um, I think if you're a dirt bag, that would change. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, Mike, just simply don't be a dirt bag and I think we can figure this out. I don't really think that that would be a con. I mean, not everyone's great, right? Yeah, not, not every tenant is going to be the same and... and problems can come from anywhere I, I still think the risk can kind of be there a little bit but yeah no anyways I, th- I thought that was just some interesting uh, information so um, this is from our friends springer.com uh, I'm just gonna quickly uh, read over this so this chapter reviews the government's market regulation on the housing industry and the purposes behind such regulation Regulation is the use of government power to restrict or constrain the decisions of economic agents. Regulation and regulatory agencies can exist at both national and subnational levels. I think they're referring to state. Government regulation can be generally categorized into three main areas. Regulation of competition, 
uh, economic regulation and social regulation. Antitrust regulation supports competition and encompasses concerns with collusion or coordinated behavior. Hmm, sounds like that guy that has a hundred properties. Uh, abuse of dominance and merges that might arise when industries are concentrated. Anyways, that's an interesting thought. Economic regulations refer to government-imposed regulations on firm decisions over price, quantity, quality, and entry and exit that are necessary in natural monopoly industries, which I think is important. Social regulations is justified where externalities, right, mm -hmm. misaligned incentives of imperfect information may hamper uh, decentralized markets from achieving the result deemed to be desirable by society. In the traditional regulatory literature, housing markets are generally uh, regarded as competitive markets with little need for antitrust or economic regulation, uh, which, I mean, I understand that, assuming that it's not a problem, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, social regulation, which includes safety, environmental, and planning regulations, as well as newer regulations governing uh, consumer protection and prevention of systematic risk, have become an increasing prominent part of the regulatory system. From the early 1980s, as part of the Thatcher government's privatization program, privatization of social housing has contributed to the transformation of housing tenure structure in the 1990s. Privatization of previously state-owning housing uh, on a massive scale has also made major contributions to economic recovery and restructuring Eastern Europe and Soviet Union as well as China. In many of these instances, government withdrew from these newly created housing markets and allowed market forces to subsequently determine prices, housing demand, and supply. So I think that that was an interesting statement because we're seeing what happens with other countries, which hasn't quite happened to us yet, mm -hmm. just because they're older, but now it's starting to crop up. I just thought it was so interesting. Uh, governments of most countries are extensively involved in regulation and inter intervening in housing markets, well-designed and well implemented regulatory policies are necessary to facilitate housing supply, stimulate private investments in housing, which I'm really not against, by the way. Conversely, poorly conceived regulation and deregulations can have costly consequences. Makes a lot of sense. I think we're starting to see it. Uh, this chapter reviews regulation in relation to the housing market, renter section regulations with regard to household eligibility, mobility, uh, rental sector and planning regulations have a long history and in some form or other they are to be found in virtually all countries. Makes a lot of sense. Most intrusive regulations such as regulations governing price and output decisions of housing producers as well as eligibility, rescale mobility regulations are common in many East Asian countries. I really don't think we have that. Anyways, so that's why it's called regulation, right? I think that if we leave a lot of businesses to do whatever the heck they want to, I think it's going to be a lot worse for the consumer, is what I believe. Because they're in it for themselves. Because they're in it for themselves, right? And I think that we need regulation uh, to prevent bad things from happening. Not that I'm saying it would happen, but we haven't had a good track record either. The When I think about regulation and kind of what you just read and what mm -hmm. we've been talking about tonight, I think about... Uh, the symbiotic relationship you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. The government is this middleman regulating the relationship we have from business to consumer. And when we're talking in the you know in perspective of landlord and renter, if there's not a regulation there, the same kind of thing can happen where a business or you know the landlord can 
can kind of put things a little bit out of control and right. it's to the detriment of people and where they're going to live and and, right. and when people are struggling with where to live that kind of disrupts your whole life and everything right. goes on hold until you can get that in control definitely it's not fair for people i agree with that i think the regulation needs to be there for sure yeah uh no i completely agree with that mike uh, i'm glad that you believe in regulation as much as i do <laughs> i guess is what i'm trying to say uh now do i think that we have regulation on everything in the government no do i think that we should ha- definitely have regulation with housing 100% I think we should, for sure. I, I cannot perceive why anyone would want to, unless they're in it for themselves or to make a larger profit, why anyone would want to remove those regulations to protect right. people. Anyways, uh, that was my thought. Anyways, Mike, any takeaways? Uh, yeah, I mean, I appreciate all the research you do. I kind of just show up here and we <laughs> discuss things. Yeah, but uh, I, I learn things every time, and you know we we talked in the beginning a lot about the market and kind of what it's done over years, and then we right. talked a lot about uh, landlords and renting, and if we've offended any anybody, I the, that's definitely not our intent. Our intent right. is just to kind of talk from our perspective and discuss things, and I think my takeaway is that there's just kind of good and bad to it that's, right. that's out there, and. I'm sorry for ever, anybody who's going through hard times because of somebody who's maybe, you know, not being a kind landlord or who's not taking care of somebody the way they deserve. I don't mean to be offensive to anybody by my opinion, but that's my opinion. Well, sometimes the truth hurts, right? Sometimes the wicked findeth the truth hard to hear, sometimes. Uh, also, there is opposition in all things. Uh, if you have something good... Like, like a quarter, for instance, you obviously have a heads and a tails, right? Uh, that's how life is a lot of the time. Sometimes you have good, sometimes you have bad. Sometimes it's right on the top, like right on the edge where it's standing, and it's not one way or the other until it gets tossed over to one side, you know? But I definitely think that in, especially the housing market, I definitely think uh, analogy is very important because uh, there are good things and there are bad things. And we just need to make sure that we're doing the appropriate thing just to benefit everyone else. That's my perspective. I think that's great. Anyways, uh, hey, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Have a great night, guys, and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you for supporting our podcast. If you would like to check out our sources from today's episode, please visit our blog at soberdiscussions.blogspot.com. And if you would like to join the discussion, email us at soberdiscussions at gmail.com.